Well, good morning. <laughs> My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, got a lot going on this week, right? I mean, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We got uh, Valentine's Day. Got a lot of things competing for our attention. A lot of things that we, we love to celebrate in our society, things that we know and, and we know uh, and, and are good and, and all these different things, and it's, it's fun. Um, but, but I think oftentimes we tend to celebrate sometimes. We, like if you walk around, if you didn't know better, you would think that like your entire world right now should be about the Super Bowl, right? Or if you go into any store, you go to Walgreens, it's like Valentine's Day is everything, Right? And so some of, some of you are like all about the Super Bowl. Some of you are like, shouldn't we be all about Valentine's Day? Some of you are like, my team didn't make it to the Super Bowl. And you don't care. You're a little irritated. Some of you are like, I'm single. I don't care about Valentine's Day. Right? And so this morning, though, I got good news for you. Those things are actually not where our attention ultimately belongs, right? And so what, what, where our ultimate attention does belong, the thing that actually brings deep, true celebration in our souls is God. And so this morning, I want to turn our attention to him and to his glory and to his majesty. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our series through the Psalms, um, in our series called Knowing and Enjoying God. And this morning, we've come to Psalm 8, and we just sang about it, right? We've just been singing about, uh, we've been singing to God and we've been singing over one another about the glory and majesty of God, right? It's a psalm that was written by King David and it's about God's majesty in all creation. And it reflects the humbled heart of a man who's overwhelmed with his position even within the cosmos, like it's designed to strike right to the core of who we are, even as God's image bearers. Or the imago Dei. We'll talk about that. That's a Latin term that means image of God. But, but more importantly, this is a psalm of praise in light of who God is. These nine verses are designed to leave us awestruck humbled and shot through with both the glory of God and his unflinching love for you and for us. The greeting this psalm's kind of, this psalm specifically, it kind of reminds me of those theme park rides, like at Bush Gardens, like the Log Flume or, or Escape from Pompeii, you know, where the, the people go out on the bridge and they're like, you know, there's all these people watching the ride from a good distance away on that bridge, and then suddenly what's happening up there suddenly swoops down, and, and then they just get engulfed with water. You know what I'm talking about? You seen that? That's what I think of when I think of Psalm 8, because it's like beholding God's majesty from afar, and then suddenly the glory of God swoops down through this psalm, and the Spirit of God just engulfs and soaks you in his majesty. You can read it like that, or you can read it like it's something that happened a long time ago, and this is like a religious thing that we do. But my hope and my prayer this morning is that our souls would be soaked and left sopping wet with the majesty and the glory of God this morning. 
Like maybe you walked from your car here and maybe you got a little wet. Like I hope that you get soaked going back, not necessarily from the rain, but from his rain. See what I did there? <laughs> Psalm 8's a song of God's majesty. But it's not just a song about a distant and impersonal God. It's a song about how we are designed to fit within or even be engulfed by his glory and his goodness. Even the structure of the psalm is designed to communicate that. Like, notice that the very first line in the psalm begins with God's majesty. Look at Psalm 1. I mean, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right out of the gate majesty. And then we're given a middle section about the place of humanity, that the place that we hold within this majestic creation. And then the psalm ends with, the verse, uh, with verse 9 saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Same exact line. So the point is that even with all of our issues, all of our struggles, our failures, our faults, even our rebellion, we've been enveloped and even invited into his majestic song of glory. Remember, psalm means song. So the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the king of glory has embraced and even engulfed you in his majesty. It's a psalm that speaks to both the fallen position of humanity in light of his glory, and it articulates the pain and sorrow of a contrite heart, which he promises not to despise. And as we'll see, the psalm is also oozing with redemption and restoration. And it's all for the majestic name of the Lord in all the earth. So as a framework for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to walk through this psalm or song of David, and we're going to unpack three aspects of God's glory on display here. Number one, three aspects of God's glory. Number one, the glory of God in creation. Number two, the glory of God in people. And number three, the glory of God in the cross. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. God does not need you, but he does desire you. God does not need you, but he does desire you. Now, here's the thing. We do need God, right? But often, we don't desire him. It's backwards. You see, the question then is, do you want him? It's not whether you need him or not. You need him. Look at your life. I don't care where you're at. Some people might say, oh, I don't need God. Yeah, you do. Right? Do you want him? Do you believe he actually wants you? Look with me now at Psalm 8. We're going to start with the first section, the glory of God in creation. Psalm 8, verse 1 through 3. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, which is like the hater. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And one of the, one of the best things about living in Virginia Beach is that we get a solid taste of all four seasons, right? But, but even in the middle of winter, we get a couple of 70-degree days, right? Anybody get a chance to get outside this past week? Yeah? I hope you did, right? I mean, that was a gift. I, I, I think of it as a total gift, right? Like, I kind of, I, I made my way, to, just, I was like, I, I got I to gotta get to the beach. I'm going to get there. I got to just experience, if it's just five minutes, I just got to stare at it with the sun on my face, right? So um, I, I walk down there, and I'm just standing, staring out at the vastness of the ocean. There's dolphins playing out in the surf. It's February, right? And I just couldn't help but just say, thank you, God. But... <laughs> It's just like it's such a privilege even, especially in the middle of February. That just felt like such a gift. But what if I was like, finally, it took you so long. Like, what if that was my exposure? What if I was just like, so cold and dark all the time. Like, this is what I deserve at all points in my life. Like, that would just be entitled idiocy. It's February. That was a gift. It's like a taste of summer and midwinter. And, and, and there's something about also being in the presence of something so vast and wild and powerful like the ocean. I never want to forget the, 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 the beauty and majesty even that's articulated in the ocean. We, we live here. We see it all the time. But don't get used to it. It's so amazing. And, and it draws our hearts to praise if you're willing to lean in. There's a very real majesty in creation. The dolphin, the pelican, the whale, the surging ocean itself, and the sun. Like when you tune in, you get a sense of just how small you are and the magnitude of his greatness and grandeur. It's not the greatness of the ocean itself. It's the greatness of the one who created it. Right? And so it's, it's barely even a glimmer also of the glory and vastness of God and his creation. Like, think about this. As enormous as the Atlantic Ocean is, it's not even the biggest ocean. Right? We're, we're, we're first runner-up to the West Coast. But then you compare that to the size of our solar system. What? And galaxy? And, and then even the universe? Like, I don't even know what that means, honestly. Like, it's beyond my comprehension. Even when people start talking about things, like they use these terms, universe, galaxies, uh, solar system, the magnitude just completely, just, it, it's lost on me. And that's not just because I'm not, not a scientist. It's because I'm human. Like, I tend to think of, when I hear solar system, I think of, like, those little foam balls from third grade, right? Like, that's, that's what I think of. But I want to catch a glimpse. I want to try to kind of get a scale somewhat of the magnitude and the majesty of God's creation. So I, I've heard it broken down like this. Our galaxy is known as the, the Milky Way galaxy, right? Like we live in the Milky Way galaxy. And so for scale, if 
our galaxy was the size of North America, then our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup. So coffee cup in the midst of North America. Okay? So, and our planet would then be the size of a speck of dust in that coffee cup. Think about that. And the latest estimates are that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Something tells me they don't quite have that one figured out yet, but that's kind of just trying to throw it out there and fathom it. 100 billion galaxies in the universe that are just, it's just, this number, I don't, like what, is, what does 100 billion even mean? The, the number billion, so, so think of it this way, right? So one million seconds equals about 12 days, right? So about 12 days, that's a whole lot of seconds, 12 days. But compare one million to one billion, one billion seconds, 31 years, right? Trillion is like 31,000 something. Like I don't even, I don't know, that's just... I shut down at that point, right? So, like, if you don't feel small yet, you're not paying attention. 100 billion galaxies. Like, let's keep going. Like, the distance between our planet and the sun is 93 million miles. Now, imagine that distance is the thickness of one piece of paper. Heard it explained like this. So the thickness of a piece of paper, not the length, the, 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 teeny bitty, the thickness, right, is that 93 million miles between the earth and the sun. And then the distance between our planet and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the distance between our planet and the end of just our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And again, our galaxy is just a speck in the universe that God created with his fingers and upholds with a word of his power. He's pretty magnificent. When I look at your heavens, verse 3, Psalm 8, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Songwriter Chris Tomlin put it like this. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation's revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings, all exclaiming, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. All-powerful, untamable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? Or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow, who imagine the sun and give source to its light, yet conceals it to bring us the coolness of, of night. None can fathom. I mean, just trying to wrap your head around the vastness of creation will send you right into an existential crisis. Like, it's huge! It's amazing! In his famous sermon, That's My King, Dr. S.M. Lockridge put it like this, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. 
He's incomprehensible. The heavens of heavens can't contain him, let alone a man explain him. And yet, and yet, there is eternal and absolute truth that he has revealed to us. Which makes that truth all the more valuable. And who am I that you would even reveal this to me through your word and your goodness? My systematic theology professor, um, he was a brilliant German man, and he started the class of systematic theology. He starts the class with one question. He walks up and he asks one question. He'd say, in German accent, I'm going to do my best. He'd say, what can we say about God? That's how he started it. You know, so we're a bunch of like students for like nobody wants to say anything. First day, you know, silence. And he said again, what can we say about God? Right? Everybody's silent. And he'd go, nothing. Nothing. We can say nothing. Who are we to say anything about the almighty creator? I loved it because he was all academic and then suddenly he'd just explode you know? And then he'd say, and yet, they must say something because he is so worthy. So we must speak, we must praise, and therein lies the goodness because he is a God of relationship. Whoo! And he's not just a massive, intimidating creator. He is, but he's also an artist. David is alluding here to the artistry of his majesty revealed in creation. That's why he speaks of creation as the work of your fingers. Like a painter or a sculptor or an author. You see, if you look at almost every other creation account throughout history in different cultures, they almost all point back to a battle between gods or titans or these massive struggles of chaos and confusion, these violent struggles that the result then becomes creation. In almost every account, that's what you get. The ongoing narrative there is that the world was formed from violence and chaos. And, and you think, you know, you might think, well, that's just some primitive society's understanding and it's ignorant. No, that's exactly what modern science declares and teaches. This is all just simply the result of chaos and confusion. There's no difference between that and the, the, the culture that says two turtles had a fight and then it was creation. Like all of this is just simply chaos and confusion. No meaning, no intentionality, no care, just pointless, meaningless chaos. No wonder our society is locked in such an identity crisis. They go to biology class and they're going to tell you life is meaningless and purposeless and you're just a sack of evolved fluid. Then you walk down the sidewalk to psychology class and they're going to tell you the entire universe centers around you. What? What? Like, this world lives on this pride-shame spectrum. But the answer is not higher self-esteem nor lower self-esteem. The answer is always and always has been God-esteem. The esteem of your creator is all that matters. The one who hung the stars in the sky says, I fearfully and wonderfully knit you together in your mother's womb. 
care for you. What? Like, I've always loved the outdoors. I, I love creation, the majesty of the artist's fingers. Like, deeply intentional in beauty and care and majesty. I've always loved it, but I didn't always connect those dots. And when I became a Christian, it was like God opened my eyes and he drew me up into this higher experience of it all. I, I was, it, it was like I was seeing not just a sunset anymore. I'm watching a masterpiece unfold in living colors on an ocean's canvas, right? Right in front of my eyes. And I, I came to Christ as a 17-year-old and I spent my senior year of high school um, without any real Christian friends or community and it was really hard and I felt alone a lot and confused sometimes. But I remember... I gotta say this story without. I, I remember I used to drive out. I was thinking about this this week. I'd almost forgotten I used to do this. I would drive out into a cornfield in eastern North Carolina. I'm talking about like one of those cornfields where you, you can't really see. It's just corn in every direction, right? Just super flat land and just corn in every direction. I'd go out there like midnight. Um, honestly, I, I don't know whether I snuck out of the house to do this or not because I was just, you know, 17, crazy, and just coming to Christ and trying to figure out life. Um, and and I would climb up on the hood of my 1989 Chevy Blazer out in the middle of this cornfield and just blare a song called Agnes Day, which means Lamb of God. Agnes Day, worthy. I would I'd turn it up, man, in the middle of nowhere. And that, that's Latin for Lamb of God. And, and it was a band called Third Day, um, and, and which, by the way, that song still hits hard. I'm just telling you. And nobody knew I was doing it. I'm just out there. But it, I, I, again, like my whole life in that moment, I, I, I had felt alone, but I would go out there and I felt surrounded by a cloud of witnesses and a chorus of angels just singing, Alleluia, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. You are holy. And the guitars just kabam, you know. And, and I just, you know, it was just me and the guitars and shooting stars and the king of eternity and probably some very confused deer. <laughs> like I didn't have any degree my doctrine was fuzzy at best but I was absolutely enamored and engulfed in the glory and the goodness of the God who had come down to me in Christ Psalm 148 says this praise the Lord praise the Lord from the heavens praise him in the heights Say, praise him. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. I don't even know what that means. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. 
for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Anybody know what praise the Lord is in Hebrew? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In his presence and the majesty of creation, you're just a speck. You're not even, you're like the speck on a speck. You're just a tiny blip on the eternal radar. You're nothing more than a breath. Like, like what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, and yet, that breath, that breath that is our life, finds its source in the eternal lungs of the almighty, almighty and eternal creator. You're not just dust. You're dust infused with his spirit and his love and his goodness. Which leads me to the next section, the glory of God in people. See, this, this question David asks isn't simply a philosophical question. It's a rhetorical question. In light of the majesty of creation, what is man? A speck? An insignificant breath? A careless mistake? A bag of flesh and bone and meaningless vanity? Vanity, vanity? All is vanity? Says wise Solomon in Ecclesiastes. The result of chaos and vain struggle, is that what it is? That's what this world would have you believe. But it's not true. You are divine image bearers. You are the works of his majestic fingers that fearfully and wonderfully and artistically knit you together in your mother's womb. You are the imago Dei. You bear the image of God. You are not God, but you do bear his image. Don't react to the fact that you're not God and then believe the lie that you're a piece of trash or that people who don't know him are just a piece of trash. And though the fall from glory into sin has been wretched and marked with deep, tragic wickedness, which it has, you need to hear this. All humanity, both believers and unbelievers, high class, low class, no class, Jew, Gentile, healthy, unhealthy, cursed, and redeemed, all hold inherent to their nature deep value and dignity. Why? Because of what you can produce? Because of what you can provide to God? Is that where humanity finds its value? And how good you are at stuff? No! He has no need of you! He doesn't need you! But listen to me. We can get so programmed by society into believing that our only worth is what we can provide. That's, that, guys, that's just simply works righteousness. And it misses the power even of this psalm. Like God's esteem for humanity is way beyond that. He doesn't need you, but he does desire you. And that bestows a much greater value because it's the value of love. He has fearfully and wonderfully made you and all of humanity, and he's placed his breath within us. Now, don't get this twisted, guys. Do not get this twisted. The truth is that humanity has fallen from glory and stands condemned before a holy God. As his image bearers, 
We have squandered our inheritance by trading the treasure of his glory for our own glory. Our position of honor in creation carries with it an eternally significant responsibility and we threw it away for our own vanity. That's the reality. All of us. All of creation stands condemned. All humanity that were given that dominion and jacked it up stand condemned before a holy God. And so while humanity carries the image of God, it's a very distorted image, and it's tainted by sin, and it's deserving of eternal condemnation. That's real. You guys feel the tension yet? That's why it's easy to look at sinful humanity with disgust. People are now not inherently good. Humanity has fallen in sin, and we are born into total depravity. Like creation cries out with the glory of God, but we've dismissed it. Turning to our own way, all like sheep, we've gone astray, each of us sinning and falling short of his glory. So we take in the magnitude of this majesty in creation, and we're shot through with his glory and pierced to the heart. And even in the midst of our rebellion, we cry out, God, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's the recognition that we don't deserve his mindfulness, much less his care. And if this psalm were to stop here, God would be fully justified and we would be totally hopeless. Because God does not need us and we don't deserve him. And so many people, though, stop right here and operate out of that. That's a half-truth. And it, which means it's a false gospel. Because that's not all. So many unable to deal with the weight of our position before a holy God begin to plug their ears at this point and look for solace in lesser saviors. Because after all, how could God be mindful of me? Like, how could God care for me in light of all this? Listen to me. It's important to realize how much you don't deserve his love. You, it's important to get that. That matters. You know Why? Like it's important to recognize that God doesn't need you. You get rid of the entitled stuff. It's important to receive this revelation that God Almighty owes you nothing. You're entitled to nothing. That's exactly what David is actually reflecting on here in this psalm. Like, how could we even be worth his time and attention? He might as well just pass on by and leave us behind. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, this is one of those but God moments. And yet, this is, this is, guys, this is, this is heavy. heavy. When I say heavy, I don't mean heavy like pressure and oppressive. I mean heavy like, are you kidding me? Awesome. Yet, verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. Where am I? <laughs> all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Verse 8, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Guys, this is a reference to the creation account. 
He's talking about Genesis here. He's talking about in the Garden of Eden. So track with me now. You guys with me? Okay, follow this. So we started with the majesty of God in creation in verse 1, right? And then in verse 2, we're told of God's enemies, haters of God, foes. And, and, and how he defeats his enemies through the mouth of babies and infants. P.S., that sounds a lot like Revelation 12, where the enemy is overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so then, in verse 3, we see how creation cries out with God's glory, and the question of how this all-glorious God could be mindful of or care for humanity. Guys, this psalm is singing the redemptive story. Creation, God's majesty, fall, human depravity. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Then suddenly in verse 5 through 8, we see a picture of restored humanity, crowned with glory and honor. We see redemption. And then in the end is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Restoration. Right here in this nine-verse song is the gospel story of redemption and the ultimate display of God's glory in all creation for eternity. We see creation, we see fall, we see redemption, and we see restoration. Right here in these nine verses. And it gets better. Like you guys, I, go back and look at it. It's, it's amazing, and it gets even better because laced within verses four and five, we're given a prophetic declaration for how God would restore his people to glory. There's even an allusion here into how he's going to do it. You see, embedded within David's question of what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him is the Hebrew word pakad. It's translated in the ESV, which I'm preaching from here, as care. What is man that you care for him? Which is accurate. But it's a word that also means visit. Track with me. In fact, the King James Version actually renders it like this. What is man that you art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? From the depths of his depraved and lowly estate, David cries out not only for God's attention, but for his presence, his visitation which is the ultimate proof of his care. And it would be through the visitation of God himself in Jesus Christ that we find our proof of his ultimate care and the source of our restoration and redemption. Fast forward a thousand years from Psalm 8 to Luke 1, which records a New Testament song from Zechariah. In Luke 1, you see, he's filled with the Spirit of God in response to the news of Christ's coming. You might even call this a New Testament psalm. And listen to what Zechariah sings in Luke 1, verse 68 through 70. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, you know, those babies and infants proclaiming the goodness and glory of God. This, guys, this is the gospel. 
That God became a man, even born as a baby, even born as an infant. God Almighty became an infant. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection, paving the way to eternal life with the Creator. And it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what Christ has done for us at the cross, and he infuses and fills and regenerates our hearts with his Holy Spirit. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to. He didn't need to because he doesn't need you. But he does desire you. And the more you grasp how much he doesn't need you, the more you will comprehend how much he loves you. This is is what calls us to put aside every weight that hinders and every sin that hinders love. Hebrews 12.2 puts it like this, looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Which leads me to the final section here, the glory of God in the cross. You see, the joy that was set before him was twofold. It was for the joy of his own glory and the glory of the Father. You can bet your bottom dollar that what he was doing was about the glory of God. That was part of the joy that was set before him. But also in in this is the joy of our redemption and our restoration and the invitation for us to experience that glory also. This is the joy that was set before him and why he endured the cross. It wasn't because he had to. He willingly laid down his life. He didn't like it. He despised it. He despised the shame, but he did it for the joy set before him. That's what ultimately lifted, was lifted high upon the cross. It's the gateway through which we are enveloped into his majesty. And the most gracious and loving thing that the all-glorious and majestic God of creation could ever do is to engulf you in his glory and his majesty. I'm just like, God, get it on me. Get it all, all in. I'm, I'm just soaking it. Like, he, he doesn't, listen to this, he doesn't just ignore sin. This is part of the glory of God upon the cross. Like, he's not bending or breaking his own rules or his laws. Like, that's not what grace is about. This is about him fulfilling it and paying the penalty we deserved. We see in Romans where he talks about in former times he passed over former sins. And yet for his righteousness to be beheld and to be upheld, that's why he went to the cross. And he paid for it. This is about Jesus taking our place. In fact, Hebrews 2 directly applies this section of Psalm 8 to Jesus himself. Hebrews 2, verse 7 through 11, in the New Testament now, okay, it's going to reference Psalm 8. And this is what the the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 2, verse 7. You made him for a little while, talking about Jesus, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay? Talking about Psalm 8 and then applying it directly to Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, 
God left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus in my place. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's try- he wants to bring you to glory. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. There's a lot there. There's a lot going on there. The depths of this, though, is that Jesus didn't just die in your place. He's also risen in your place. He's been crowned with glory and honor, and he invites you to immerse in his majesty. It's not your own glory. It's his. It's not your own righteousness so that no one may boast. It's all his, and we receive it by faith. It's imputed to us by faith. It's it's, that big word, imputed or assigned righteousness. But it's no less available and it's no less effective. The question is, will you receive it? The question is, do you want him? Like the lame man beside the Bethesda pool, Jesus offers restoration, but first he asks, do you want to be healed? Do you want healing? And this isn't just a question for initial salvation, guys. This is part of sanctification. Do you want me to help you with this issue? Do you want me in this area of your life that you're so clinging to whatever it is, control or idolatry or something? Will you look to me? Do you want Jesus? Again, we all need him. He doesn't need us, but we absolutely need him. And while he doesn't need you, there's no question of whether he wants you or not. He does want you, but do you want him? Guys, Psalm 8 is all about Jesus. Jesus is the incarnation of the indescribable God in the flesh. Hebrews again, verse 1, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 tells us this, that he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Talking about Jesus. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The point that's being made here is he's not simply an image bearer of God. He is God. Jesus isn't just a wise man who lived a long time ago and did some good things and said some helpful stuff. He's God in the flesh. And Jesus received, I love this, like on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, a lot of this gets kind of like brushed over sometimes. But when Jesus walks into Jerusalem the week before he's crucified, in, in Luke 19, he receives praise and worship that are due only to the majestic Lord of Psalm 8. He receives it. Like he enter, remember, he, he comes in on a baby donkey, not a warring stallion. He doesn't come in strength and power and rah. 
He comes in on a baby. And the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means Savior. And look at Luke 19, verse 38 through 40. Verse 38. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And look at what Jesus says to them. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know why? God of creation strolling in to lay his life down on the back of a baby donkey. <sighs> oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Theologian N.T. Wright put the incarnation of God in Christ like this. And I think it's very applicable. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That fire has become flesh. That life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. He's God. He's alive. He's real. He doesn't need you, but he desires you. Do you know him? He wants you to know him. And that's what makes it all so much more glorious. Because who am I and who are you? I've told you before that one of the most powerful revelations I've had in my life about our position before God came from an old man named Carl Scott. I've preached this multiple times. I'll preach it again because it just it drills me to the floor every time I think about it. Carl was a, um, a, an old man. I think at the time he was 95 years old. And he'd lived, I mean, ran a great race <laughs> for the kingdom of God. And he's in a room full of a bunch of 20-year-olds at 95, and somebody asks him, you know, um, what's, what, they're like, you're probably going to meet Jesus before any of us, right? <laughs> and, and they're like, so what are you going to say to him? What are you going to say to Jesus when you see him face to face? And Carl bent over his walker. He just kind of looks at the ground, and, and, and Mr. Scott lowers his eyes, and he tearfully looks up again, and he says, why me? Why did you save me? See, I don't understand it. I've never understood it, but I have eternity to thank him for it. Guys, he understood. Carl understood. Mr. Carl Scott understood. God didn't need him, and, and he didn't deserve God. And on an even deeper level, he understood that God desired him, though, and he loved him. And guys, let me tell you, that man was a lover of God and of people. And he's now face to face with his best friend and the king of eternity. Hannah Anderson. I know I got a lot of quotes, but they're good. In her book, All That Is Good, she writes this. If we are to seek whatever is honorable, it must include seeking the honor that is inherent in God's image bearers. 
We must recognize their intrinsic dignity and hold it in high esteem. There is no wiggle room on this. No matter how different a person may be from us, no matter what political, social, or moral views they may hold, no matter how strongly and vehemently we disagree with them, no matter their crimes, we must not dishonor the image of God in them. To joke about their death or destruction, to celebrate their pain and loss, to openly mock and belittle their struggles is to blaspheme the God in whose image they are created. This is no easy thing, especially when someone's not living honorably themselves, when they're not living in a way that's consistent with their identity as an image bearer. Somehow their hatred, pride, and deceit are able to draw hatred, pride, and deceit from us. That's why in his first epistle, Peter makes a point to call slaves to honor the emperor, an emperor who was at that very moment seeking their lives. In calling us to honor those who have, in all human logic, forfeited the right to honor, we testify to a greater reality. Whether or not a person is living within the dignity of their identity as an image bearer does not change the fact that God has bestowed dignity on them. In honoring them, we honor God. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, but for the grace of God, there go I. And because I'm just in a quote, quotey mood, <laughs> one of my favorite sermons about the majesty of God is from a message preached in the 70s by Dr. S.M. Lockridge called That's My King. I, I love it so much because he, he takes what we know about Jesus and it's like he overlays it on Psalm 8. And so I want to close with a video excerpt and, and from his sermon, and I pray that the Holy Spirit uses it to draw your soul to worship him along with David and the angels and the cloud of witnesses who have sung this psalm of majesty for the past 3,000 years. This psalm is about my king. This psalm is about the majesty of Jesus. Do you know him? 